Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I am Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. Today, we have with us executive and relationship coach, Dr. John Schinnerer, who hails from the Bay Area and focuses on important topics in his work, such as emotional growth for men. Let's hear all about it. We are excited to have on Strangers on the Internet today, Dr. John Schinnerer who in his own words, quote, coaches men to perform at their peak from the boardroom to the bedroom, end quote. He hosts the popular podcast, The Evolved Caveman, which you should definitely check out and whose info is in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to his book, How Can I Be Happy? and a lot of other good stuff. John has a PhD in educational psychology from UC Berkeley and has actually served as an expert consultant for the Pixar movie Inside Out. He is an expert not only in high performance, but also stress management, positive psychology, anger management, and the creation of happy relationships. Over 10,000 people have taken his anger management course, and his mini courses on anger management and forgiveness he recorded for Simple Habit have been listened to over 85,000 times. John has won a number of awards, including for Best Executive Coach in Danville, California. John, welcome to the show. Can you tell us more about your journey to becoming a coach and podcast host? Thank you so much. Thank you for the very long introduction. Always makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. So you want to know, okay, let's see. So going back to like high school, my parents were always very high achieving, kind of successful. And I think I learned from them that that's what I needed to do in order to be, to get their attention and their love. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I had learned that lesson really well. And I was student body president. I was captain of three varsity teams. I was taking advanced courses. I was doing all the things the adults told me I needed to be doing to be quote successful. And the kind of paradoxical experience that I had was that internally, I wasn't really finding much happiness or joy in doing all that. What I found was some depression, some anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of exhaustion, illness at times, because I was so overworked. And it just made me start questioning this whole concept of success. And that story that we're sold from a very young age of get good grades, get into the best college, get a good job, make a lot of money, get married, have kids, make more money and retire, and then you'll be happy. And, you know, it, what the my overachieving did work and got me into a good college, uh, studied philosophy there, eventually went to UC Berkeley, got a PhD in psychology. And the, the thing that I really wanted to focus on was emotions, largely because I've always been highly sensitive and the dumbest, most embarrassing, most shameful stuff in my life that I've done always came when my emotional mind was in charge of me. And so I was really, and it, it didn't happen often, but still I felt like there was this piece of me that I couldn't quite manage. And so I was really curious to learn more about that. Um, went on to become a school psychologist, left that after a few years, became an entrepreneur. That worked for about seven years. My company then crashed and burned when the economy tanked in, I think it was 2007, 2008. So I had to reinvent myself. And at that point started getting into positive psychology, which is the scientific study of 
happiness, meaning, purpose, positive emotions. And so at that point in my life, I had tools to kind of turn down the volume on the negative thoughts and emotions and tools to turn up the volume on positive thoughts and emotions. And I thought, wow, this is really great. And so I wrote compulsively, kind of wrote a book on how to coach people towards a successful and happy life and ended up writing like 600 pages. And I was like, oh my God, like no one's ever going to read this. But that rough draft got me, I met a guy who owned a radio station and he offered me to do a daily primetime radio show. That idea scared the crap out of me because UC Berkeley was not a good teacher of how to do live radio. In fact, what I had been, what had been drilled into me there was the only thing you can say is findings backed up in research studies, which I mean, might be slightly compelling, but it's not going to motivate anyone to do anything because it's not about, I would argue it's not about connecting with the rational analytical mind. It's about connecting with the emotional. And you do that through storytelling, you do it through emoting, you do it through vulnerability, you do it through jokes. And I was awful at all that. So I, I really had a steep learning curve, but ultimately got to interview some great world-class experts, stopped that after a year and then opened up private practice. And initially it was positive psychology. That was kind of lukewarm when I was trying to build my, my practice, switched that to anger management. That kind of started me working more with men or males and although women are angry too. And then somewhere along the line, I realized that my business model sucks in the sense that I have to work an hour to get paid for an hour. And if I go on vacation, if I get sick, nothing. So I started looking at how can I monetize my knowledge using the internet? Cause I've always been a geek in a variety of ways, technical, emotional, um, yeah, you name it, superheroes. But I started looking at creating this online anger management course and created the whole thing myself, put it up online myself. And it was funny because when I finally put it up online, a couple things happened. One was I, they told me to find a niche. And so I said, okay, anger management for men. When I went live with that message, I started getting emails from angry women all around the world saying, Hey buddy, what about us? We're pissed off too. And I was like, I didn't know, like it's not personal, but so I changed it, made it for everyone. And then I also got contacted at that point by one of the heads of the Mexican mafia who had been in prison for 29, 30 years. And so I got to do a little bit of work there, which was interesting. And then, you know, from there, I kind of, I got tired of doing anger management after about 10 years and started working more with executives and business leaders and realized pretty quickly that the biggest source of their pain, in my opinion, was at home in their relationship. So I started teaching them relationship skills and tools to be better in relationship, which interestingly, all those tools apply to their work as leaders in the corporate world, as well as to their parenting. So that was fun. And it, that led to this more recent work in masculinity and man box culture, which is how we are socialized as boys and the rules that we learn about what it means to be a real man. Do you want to tell us more about man box culture? What is it? Why is it a problem? Sure. I, I just wanted to take a break. Just <laughs> let you jump in. <laughs> so it's, it's how we're socialized and the socialization process starts about the age of four or five. As soon as we get into groups of boys, so a lot of men have told me, well, my dad wasn't like that. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Good for you. They don't need to be. It doesn't necessarily come from mom or dad, but it definitely comes from our peers. It can, it definitely comes from the media that we consume, movies, radio, music, 
social media. And it's all the messages that we get. And the messages are things like dominate women, don't back down, compete, be aggressive, be stoic, be the provider. I might be missing a few, but those are some of the highlights. And, you know, I can argue that there's some good and there's some bad in those, right? I mean, one is like be self-reliant, right? And I think even within that one rule, that's good to a point. So if you think about these on like a one to 10 scale, I don't want to be overly reliant on someone else, a one, nor do I want to be 100% self-reliant, a 10. I want to be somewhere in the middle. And I, and I think that's true in most of these are like, there's a range that has to do with moderation. But the, the biggest one that I see that's problematic is that idea of be stoic, don't feel. And how are you for swearing on this podcast? Oh, we're good. We're an explicit podcast. <laughs> just got thumbs up from Michelle. Okay. <laughs> I just want to check because, and I think this is really important. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't bring it up. But when we're younger, when we're growing up and think middle school to high school, if I show too much sadness or fear in public in front of friends or peers, at some point, I'm going to get the messaging that has to do with, dude, don't be a pussy, don't be a little bitch, or don't be a little girl. Now, there's other insults that can go in there, but those three are the epitome of the feminine. So the message we get is don't be feminine. And I don't think it takes many times of getting that message before you're like, shit, I'm never showing that again. Like that's painful. That's embarrassing. And we hop back in the man box. On the other side of the emotional spectrum, if we show too much joy, love, romanticism, excitement, flamboyance, God forbid, we'll get something like, dude, don't be gay or don't be a fag. And I apologize for the slurs. It's not my intent to slam anyone. I'm just trying to explain what this is the process we go through. We're not endorsing that. I'm just saying it's what right. Well, and I think it's critical to talk about it. So if you don't, if you don't understand what the game is, you can't step out of it. If you, if you know the game and you can label it, then you can go, Oh yeah, I don't need to play that game. So again, we get that message a few times. We jump back in the man box and then what are we left with that we can display to others without fear of embarrassment or humiliation. And I would argue it's three things. And I'm, probably some variations on this, but the three things are lust. She's so hot. I do her because if I tell you that, then I'm signaling my heterosexuality. I'm straight. That's safe. The second one is stress because if I tell you how stressed I am, then I'm saying I'm busy and important at some level that's safe. And the third one, and I would say the biggest one is some degree of anger, irritation, annoyance, frustration, rage, but anger is safe in the sense that anger is energizing. It's empowering. When I'm angry at you, I am all right. You are all wrong. I'm externalizing all blame onto you. So I wouldn't be so angry if you would just stop being such a fill in the blank. And yeah, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's huge because like, even we know male depression shows up as irritability and anger. And I mean, there's, there's layers to it, but it's, it all comes back to that. And the problem with it is it cuts us off from any chance of personal development and growth. And I see it again and again and again. And knowing we were going to have you on the show and listening to some episodes of your podcast, you know, we had a little bit of an idea about your, your background of work and all of that. So we came up with some questions that I think a lot align with what you just said. So one is, that a lot of people in the dating world, right? So that's the focus of our podcast. A lot of people in the dating world feel like the single male dating pool is lacking 
in some specific ways. One is as it relates to commitment, which I know we want to get into later, but also because of that lack of emotional availability and perhaps even lack of emotional intelligence that we perceive that men in the dating pool have. So for example, a recent study showed that almost half of British boys and men, young men between the ages of 16 to 24, express positive feelings towards misogynist Andrew Tate and his messaging about what it means to be masculine, which I think so much of what you just explained answers one of the questions we had, which is what are your thoughts on this? Why does this resonate with so many young men? I think because that kind of misogynistic messaging falls into that safe category that you mentioned about lust, stress, and anger. But we know that with that kind of messaging, getting so much exposure, whether through him or elsewhere on social media, with social media being so accessible, this is a message that's very much out there. How do we effectively reach young men with alternative perspectives? How do we help them know that it's okay and valuable? Well, I think that's part of why I do what I do. I think it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a question and I don't have a stock answer to it. Um, I think that it's communication. I think that it's getting the message out there. I think that it's giving young men permission to feel without shaming them. I think it's modeling that behavior. I mean, I remember this was some years ago, probably like 18 years ago, my son was six or seven and he had gotten in trouble for something and he got sent to his room. So he's standing in the doorway to his room and he's crying. And I walked past and I saw him crying and I was like, oh, I want to normalize that. I, I don't want to shame that. I want him to be comfortable with that. And so I, I knelt down and I said, hey, listen, it's okay to cry. Like tears are a source of strength. They're not a show of weakness. So I always want you to be comfortable with that. And he kind of digests that and he looks at me and he goes, do you cry? And I was like, oh shit. He's like, can I see you cry? And I was just like, oh my God. Like I'm thinking, you know, it's been 15 years since I've cried a tear because of how I was socialized. And my response was sure. Like, I don't know when that'll happen, but yeah, absolutely. So as luck would have it, maybe not luck, I don't know. I was in a great deal of pain due to spinal stenosis. So I was having nerve pain, which is brutal. I remember I was lying on like five or six ice packs on my bed and I was so defeated in that moment that I just had tears running down the side of my face. And I, my wife at the time, I said, oh, go get the kids. They wanted to see me cry. And so my two oldest kids at the time come running and jump on the bed and they're just, you know, bug eyeing me. And they're like, and like, they're just taking it in. And I was really proud of that moment in the sense that I gave my son permission to cry. But another thing that happened, which really was unexpected, was that it reduced the intensity of my pain. It didn't eliminate it, but it reduced it noticeably because now my pain had meaning. So I think, you know, it's these little acts of giving our sons permission to feel, encouraging them to feel, and, and you know, realizing that to me, in my opinion, what we're trying to do is give young men or boys the permission to embrace all aspects of their humanity, regardless of how we label their masculinity or femininity. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I would say so. And I think it also harkens back to what you were saying about finding middle ground, because I think about, while I think it's a much more common complaint, the man who I'm dating or whatever doesn't let me into his emotional world or doesn't seem to have emotions, every once in a while, you'll get the opposite end of it as well, which is this person's trauma dumping on me or emotion dumping on me. And so to be able to find that middle ground is important. You know, it's interesting because like you said, you're in showing your own moment of vulnerability. You are leading by example. You are 
giving him permission, as you said, that it's okay to be this way. And you're also showing this idea of let's experiment in small ways. I often talk about this in my work with clients of, you know what your comfort zone is. And when you're trying to expand that, don't leap outside of it, step outside of it. So yeah. show your emotions around something that it's not going to be devastating to you if it doesn't go well and, and see how it goes. And if it goes okay, then the fear of that doesn't speak so loudly anymore. And now it just, it feels like, okay, this is a thing I can do. But if you really leap outside of your comfort zone and it doesn't go well, that makes people retreat far back into their comfort zone. They're like, well, never leaving that again, never showing an emotion again. So I think the ways that you're talking about it really emphasize the value of that middle ground and how you might get there. One to speak to the point that you made where, you know, women are finding that men have no emotional access or kind of hiding behind that, that mask. And then all of a sudden they, they lose that emotional control. I think that's a really common dynamic in most men that haven't evolved out of the man box because we are still human before we are male or female and we still feel. And I, you know, I love that idea that my, my emotions didn't leave me. I left my emotions. And, and so it's impossible to suppress them for any length of time. At some point, they're going to get so loud and intense that they're going to come out and bite you in the ass. And usually that's in anger. But, you know, the other part of it is like you were talking about Andrew Tate and that whole dynamic with, you know, misogyny and these odd influencers to me. But to me, most of our emotions as men get channeled through that anger lens. I mean, I've seen fear and anxiety. And we're talking like a third of a second, right? So fear and anxiety flip to anger, guilt and shame can flip to anger, depression flips to anger. And so I really see a lot of that as fear coming out as anger, because as I said, anger's safe. If I'm angry at you, it's all your fault. And I don't have to look at myself and develop. And that's really convenient for me. When we see these dynamics, I mean, a lot of women complain about men being irritable, specifically, you brought up irritability, being irritable in relationships. But then when, and they could be, by the way, male or a female partner that notices that often a male partner is uh, is, is acting irritable. And then when the, the person tries to approach the problem, be like, hey, what's going on? You want to talk about it? Should we make a change or whatever? It's like, no, nothing. Everything's fine. Like, all right. And the person doesn't want to communicate. So how can the parties involved step out of that, move out of that and, and to somewhere more productive when that happens? Because it does happen a lot. It's a great question. I, I think that, you know, we have to realize that very little constructive happens when one or both of us in a partnership are triggered, are emotional, are flooded. And I, I think that one of the things I've, one of the ways I've found success in my own relationship recently is to circle back to these, let's say, argument later on when we're both calm in an attempt to revisit and dissect what happened. And what I've realized, so my, my fiance is a marriage and family therapist. So I, I imagine we have conversations that would drive other people nuts, but it's, it's funny because when we first started dating some seven years ago, she was really good at this and she would keep wanting to come back to conversations and revisit them. And I was good for, you know, maybe once or twice, she would be like three or four times. And I'd, at, at times I'd be like rolling my eyes, like, oh my God, like, seriously, we got to talk about this again. But what I realized through that uncomfortable process was that every subsequent conversation we had about that disagreement, we were unearthing patterns that typically began far before we got together. And typically we had no conscious awareness of, and we could talk about them more objectively and calmly. 
which also led to greater healing. So on that note, being able to talk about things more objectively and calmly and that how that means that things aren't said in anger that then people can't unhear and um, and that you also feel bad about. People often usually do feel bad about the things they say in anger oh, yeah. that they don't mean. And you talked even earlier now as in our chat, as well as in another interview that you have done about this idea of shame. And you had said previously, you don't see any positive function for shame. One thing we wondered about is, doesn't shame sometimes serve a useful role by getting people not to do horrible things to other people where there's, if you violate these social norms, maybe this is a way to remind you there are consequences to that. How do you find, I guess, a middle ground there or navigate that dynamic of, we don't want people to be so ashamed that they can't address the issue, that they'd rather just avoid it. But how do we help them, I guess, remember that there's a right and a wrong? How do you navigate that dynamic well, or suggest that I, people do? Great question. Thank you for that. And I, I kind of make differentiations between like an evolutionary or group psychology level. And then I think there's internal shame and external shame, which I can explain a little bit. But I, I think the evolutionary psychology argument is that shame was functional in that it kept members of the tribe from misbehaving. And okay, cool. I can agree with that if we're living in tribes. I think that in today today's age, I like Brene Brown's definition that shame is the belief that we are unworthy of love, connection, and belonging. And if that's the case, the only function of shame is to make us think that we are not worthy of being in this relationship, whatever this relationship is. Whether that shame is internally sourced or, you know, you're applying shame to me, you know, we think of parents, you know, shame on you. And the problem is it does not motivate positive behavior. It shuts you down. It can get you to withdraw. But, and, and the funny thing is also, and I've had a lot of talks about shame with people, I don't know, in the past six months. And if you would have told me three years ago that I had any shame in me, I would have been like, no, nah, I don't think so. And then I got curious about it. And I realized when I would get in arguments with my fiance, I could go for about 15, 20 minutes and then I would get flooded. And as I would get flooded, I would try and be quiet because I didn't want to say anything in anger that was going to hurt her, but it looked like, and it was stonewalling at the same time. And there was a couple minutes in there when I'm stonewalling where I would have thoughts like she'd be better off without me, or I'm no good at this relationship thing. That's shame. And when I realized that I was like, holy shit, like I do have shame and I need to address that because that's dangerous. Those thoughts are dangerous. Well, they don't serve you and they don't serve your relationship. So right. they serve you in an immediately self-protective sense, but they don't serve you in the long run of getting the full quality that you could of testing out those fears in gentle ways to figure out, are they true or are they just fears? I yeah. get that. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. And, and uh, one thing, um, while we're on the on this topic, right, uh, which I guess is, is always the topic here on our show uh, about uh, romantic relationships, what qualities in people do you think are key for a successful romantic relationship? And what do you think are the most important red flags to watch out for while dating? Um, and I'm also curious as part of that, what it's been like to, to use the tools that you teach in your own romantic relationships. Wow, there's a lot there. So I remember I got this question, I was doing an interview in San Francisco and there was a female intern there that had just graduated from Harvard. And after the interview, she came up to me and she said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. She said, I just, I broke up with my boyfriend like five months ago. I'm ready to go start dating again. 
is there any advice you can give me on what to look for? And I was like, yeah, I think that, you know, you want to come up with your list of five must haves and your list of maybe three deal breakers. And to me, the number one thing that you're looking for is someone with a growth mindset specifically around relationship tools. Because if you have someone that will grow with you in learning how to be better in relationship, what can't you deal with? Now, there's still some things, but that's that's pretty good. The, the other things I added to my list were things like emotional awareness, communication, integrity. They're all the things that we don't think about when we go out dating, because I think the easy things to look for are like, I want someone that's hot. I want someone that's beautiful. I want someone that's fit. I want someone that turns me on. Well, that's, that's a, to me, that's assumed. That's a given. It's all the, all the soft skills that are harder to identify and are vastly more important in my opinion. Now, in terms of, you know, what to look for, what to look for in terms of red flags, what I've told people lately is for those that can learn to trust your intuition. So if you see the smallest red flag coming out of the gates early in those first three dates, or the texts that you have early, you got to honor that. You got to listen to it. And, and they're subtle, but you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I'll talk about, like kind of identifying, trying to identify personality disorders when you're going out dating. One of the things I look for is if I go out with someone, I tend to, I tend to talk about emotion a lot. So I'm trying to see if I'm can pick using my empathy. Can I pick up anything from them of what they're feeling? And you might notice that with some people, they know the words to say, the emotional words, but they have this, to me, they have like a plastic feeling. There's an empty feeling. Like I'm not picking up anything emotionally, vibrationally, and energetically. And I'm like, to me, I'm, I'm out of there. I'm like, thanks. Appreciate your time. Not a match for me. Bye. Anything that has to do with integrity, anything that has to do with, you know, still harboring anger for their ex, those to me are all bad signs. Anyone that lies off the get-go you know, about their weight, about their age, that to me is a clear indicator that this is someone I want nothing to do with. You know, we talk about that so much on this show and, and we bring up that stat where apparently 80% of people admit to lying on dating apps, which just blows one's mind. But And Michelle and I totally agree with you. I mean, we're very anti-lying. It bothers us a lot. And uh, uh, it, it usually is not a good sign, even if it's like a quote unquote small lie, it's, it, yeah. it's, it means something. So another sort of issue I want to bring up to you, which relates to some of the things you've said, and I think it relates to the ability to be there emotionally, but it also has more to it is another complaint that a lot of women have, and that we've seen also voiced in the media uh, recently quite a bit, is that a lot of men tend to shun the work that's involved in caretaking specifically. Mm. So whether we're talking about mental labor, emotional labor, physical labor, or stuff that results in weaponized incompetence, we know from hard studies that even when both partners work full time, the average man spends less time taking care of kids or household tasks. And then there are also the studies suggesting that even when the woman is employed and the man is not, that oftentimes that actually drives women to do more work in the household than they were doing before. So what do you think would motivate men to change in this particular respect? Because it seems like a lot of them feel like they've got a pretty good deal with the way that society is currently arranged in that respect. Yeah. And, and I think part of that goes back to the man box idea, right? That we have bought into these 
gender roles and we have assumptions about how a woman should behave in the home and how a man should behave in the home. And I think a lot of men have evolved beyond that. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. And I think a lot of men have not. And, and you asked about motivation. I, I think they're motivated to not evolve beyond that because to evolve beyond that means they've got to pick up more work and help out. Now, to me, I look at it as I care about my partner I want to take stress off of her plate. I want her to be able to sit down with me after dinner and watch a show or snuggle. I want to make sure that she is mentally well. I want to help out where I can. And I want, I'm looking for an even distribution of chores. But, you know, I, there's a lot of men that don't want to do that. They want to go home and sit on a... Do you confront them about that? Like your clients or your if friends? Clients, if you see yeah. that happening, yeah. 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 Um, I don't have a lot of friends that would sit on the couch while, you know, yeah. the, their partner's doing everything. So, but I, I'll talk to clients about it. Let me ask you a follow-up, oh, I guess, a couple follow-up questions maybe. So some of what you've been talking about is how there can be a mismatch between what men who are in the man box value and what either partners uh, of any gender otherwise value that is not in the man box. I mean, I think especially for women who do not value the man box kind of things. And then also we were just talking a bit about lying and how somebody might say on a dating app or on a date, I value these things. But like you said, there's there's nothing there. There's no substance to suggest that they really do believe that. And I think that relates to something that we see come up a lot, a common theme, at least within heterosexual dating, that there seems to be a huge mismatch between what men and women are actually really looking for. Specifically, more women are looking for serious relationships, whereas more men are looking for something more casual and wanting to keep their options open. Although some would say they don't always make that particularly clear in their dating profiles or on early dates. And so it can be very frustrating. And it is for a lot of women and heterosexual dating situations. So in your work with men, why do you think it is that men, I mean, do you think that that's true? That more men are looking for something more casual, wanting to keep their options more open rather than wanting serious relationships. And if it is true, why do you think that is? I could argue that either way, actually, because I think that's always been the story. Men are looking for sex. Women are looking for a relationship. And recently I read some data that showed that in the 20-somethings, a lot of young women are actually now just hooking up with men to get their sexual needs met. And part of this is because the lack of marriage quality men in that age group. You know, if, if you're living at your parents, smoking weed, playing video games, you know, how good of a catch are you? Like, how desirable is that? You've got no mission, no purpose, no meaning. And, and so I think that's shifted a little bit. So I think it can go either way to an extent. And as far as, I mean, like, I remember one client of mine came in, he was probably 40, CEO, pretty wealthy. And he plops down on my couch. And he's like, and he was dating at the time. And he's like, John, all women are bitches. And I just started laughing. And I was like, huh, how's that belief working for you in the dating world? Because I imagine it's not working for you at all. And it wasn't. And, and so part of this also has to do with, and, and oh God, there's so much to this. You know, I like Tasha Yurik's work in which she shows that 95% of us will tell you that we're highly self-aware. And in fact, the numbers are about 10 to 15%. That's one of the biggest stumbling blocks right there is we think we're self-aware. We think we're evolved. We think we're doing the right thing and we don't have a clue. 
we don't, we don't know what our values are. We don't know what we feel. We don't know what we think. And we're automatons. We're just blindly, mindlessly shuffling through life, believing that we're aware. And so, you know, part of it is getting these guys to wake up and smell the coffee and begin to get self-aware, begin to develop emotional granularity, begin to develop that vocabulary, begin to learn how to communicate, begin to learn what do you value most? And, and I think part of this gets back to, you know, kind of the, this idea about values. And, and I think the whole man box thing, you know, it's in, in the man box, we're only as successful as our last achievement. And so if we're not making money, if we're not doing achievement upon achievement, we can fall off the map, we can fall into depression, we can really struggle with that. And the values that I think we learn to subscribe to from the man box are traditionally things like wealth and power, maybe fame. And they're very typically self-focused values or goals. Whereas we know from research that if you want a happy, meaningful, thriving life, far better to focus on self-transcendent goals like serving others. And to me, and I'm biased, I can't figure out a better value than service of others. If, if happiness at all interests you. And I mean, because even <laughs> if, if you- If you're like, interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like imagine like if I'm a if I'm a woman looking for a man and I go after a typical man who is only concerned with wealth, I guarantee you what's going to happen in that relationship or in 10 or 20 years. It's not a mystery. He's choosing money over love. And eventually I'm going to be second fiddle and I'm going to get resentful and pissed and then eventually I'm going to leave. Or I'm going to be miserable and just stay in the relationship. Or also he's going to pick the younger model, which is considered by society. I didn't even to want to mention that. <laughs> no, but we have, we have to say it, right? I mean, I, I think oh, I've a seen lot it. of people yeah, put up with yeah. a lot of stuff in that department. Oh, yeah. And I think it relates to what you were saying, too. Like when you said for a lot of men, we're only as valuable as our last achievement. You know, and I was thinking, or conquest, like that counts as an achievement, you know. Uh, and, and, and that egocentrism that you were talking about. I really was like, okay, this is a really helpful way to think about because the question I had for you is, do you think that many men are undervaluing the benefits of a committed relationship? And I think probably the answer is yes, because they're valuing what's my next achievement rather than is there a value to maintaining something that's already good? And so do you think that men maybe undervalue, not all men, but, uh, but that there are a lot of men that undervalue the benefits of a committed relationship. And of course, not to say that the inverse couldn't also be true, that many women maybe are undervaluing the perks of non-committal dating. But if that's the case, do you have ideas as to what might help men assess the value of a committed relationship, what that would bring to their life or the value of maintenance rather than what's the next thing? Well, so I can divide men into two groups more or less, and that might be highly oversimplified, but I think that sure, guys that yeah. subscribe to the man box will look at men or women as conquests. They're looking for, to dominate. They're looking to have a woman that just follows what they say. And, you know, to me, that doesn't really bode well for a happy relationship. And we know that there's research that shows that the more you subscribe to the man box, the more miserable your relationship's going to be. And then the other part of it is I've talked to a lot of young men who are looking for a relationship, who have evolved to an extent out of the man box, who are emotionally aware and that gives me hope. But there was a second part to your question, I forget. I think just what are the ways that we might help men see the value of investing in a relationship rather than oh. only investing in them, themselves yeah, so, and their accomplishments? You know, 
I, I've talked to a lot of men over 30 years. And one of the questions I'll ask them is, you know, so what was your first time having sex like? 95% of those I've talked to will say, and, and I'll, I'll give them my experience first because I'm trying to normalize. They will say, yeah, I, I regret it. It was meaningless. I didn't care about her. And I felt kind of lousy afterwards, which was my experience. And then I kind of would get into it further and talk about, you know, one night stands versus having sex in a committed relationship, thinking that most men would be like, yeah, one night stands. Again, 95% of them were like, no, I prefer being in an emotionally connected relationship. Huh? So I don't know if that's a representative sample, but those guys are out there. And I've always been surprised at how many guys are like, yeah, I don't, I'm not really comfortable with the one night stands. And I, I think that's growth. Yeah. And some men probably want that and don't necessarily know how to get there. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and so, and some of them, I think default back to more casual things because they don't, I mean, cause it's such a struggle and, and then, you know, but one of the thing I was wondering about generally looking at your own life. So if you look back and you, you're already looking back a little bit here, but so I'm going to piggyback on that. When you look back at your past romantic relationships, I mean, you've been married, you've had other significant partnerships. If you look at kind of the arc of your romantic life, what did you learn uh, from these relationships about yourself as well as about relationships generally, uh, and as you think about you know, moving into the into your romantic future, let's say past uh, past moving into the present and future, how have you sort of like changed, and what is important to you now? Wow, that's a huge question. <laughs> I think one of the earliest lessons I learned was be really careful of personality disorders, and we should all be familiar with the dynamics. We should all be able to label them. We should all be able to spot them relatively early if you don't want your life to be burned down around you. Then beyond that, I think that one of the big ahas for me is this idea that love isn't enough. I, I think we're fed this fairy tale from a young age, you know, the Disney princess thing of, and then they lived happily ever after, yay. It's easy to fall in love. Limerence is like, that's not hard to find. I don't know if you're familiar with limerence, but it's that optimistic, passionate, obsessive, you know, you, thinking about the person all the time, you want to have sex with them all the time. That's kind of the precursor to love. And that can last, I don't know, four months to three years, depending on how good you are at sustaining it. But that, that feeling's not enough. And it's also not love. And so to make a choice to be with someone that is also choosing to be with you and to commit to learning the tools to be better in relationship, to be better at communication, to be more relational rather than individualistic, to be curious about what it is they're feeling, to know that, you know, 66% of our issues in a relationship just cannot be resolved, which means that we got to get better at radically accepting the parts of our partner that we don't like. And, and I think the other thing that's <laughs> hit me in the face recently is this whole research on attachment styles, because I, I think part of the struggle I've been in with my fiance was, you know, she was an anxious and I was an avoidant. And so you get in this anxious avoidant trap. And what, what we realized was happening was we get into a disagreement. I would get flooded. I would try and create space so I could calm myself down. That would panic her. She would pursue. The more she pursued, the more space I wanted to get. That's not a good dynamic. And, you know, so we had to kind of figure out ways. And again, this is one of those situations where coming back to it over and over, 
and being curious about it really helped us to dissect and dismantle that dynamic. So John, thank you so much for all the insight and wisdom you have given to our listeners today. Last question we have for you is, what didn't we ask you that we should have? What's an important nugget for us to end on for this, for this chat today? Yeah, thanks for asking, Michelle. And I think that one of the things I like to offer to men is a reminder, maybe for the first time, to begin to become curious about positive emotions and to get more comfortable and aware of the breadth of positive emotions and how to put the circumstances to create those emotions more frequently into play in your life. Because what I see is a lot of men do not have meaning and purpose, but what do you need to create meaning and purpose, but passion? What's passion based on, but emotion, positive emotion. So if, the, if we can only name three emotions in our body, like happy, sad, mad, we're screwed. And, and so to me, it, it kind of begins, some of the positive steps begin with this awareness that positive emotions are important, that they're fleeting and fragile, that they're quiet, they whisper to us that if you overthink them, they disappear, which, you know, most men are way over identified with the thinker in their head and completely disconnected from their body when and emotions are embodied. Descartes really screwed us with the uh, whole, I think, therefore I am completely decapitating head from body. And, and so I, I think that, you know, if any men are listening out there to really be curious about things like joy, awe, wonder, curiosity, relaxation, contentment, happiness, elevation, naches. I mean, there's all sorts of different positive emotions that we can become curious about because if we're not aware of their existence, we're not aware when they strike us. And you're effectively cutting yourself off from a really somewhat simple source of happiness. Great. Well, what a wonderful message to uh, to end this podcast on. Thank you so much, uh, John, for being on this show. And like I said, every uh, everything is in our show notes. As I hope people can find you and find your work and listen to your podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com without a the. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we're on the Faustodon server with two S's. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuku for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.